Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare associated infections and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program and thank you so much for joining us today. We thank our sponsor, Summit Therapeutics, for making this special series possible. Summit Therapeutics is a leader in antibiotic innovation and has a clear strategy through new science and philosophy. They are creating new opportunities to become the standard of care for serious infectious diseases. To learn more, please visit their website, www.summitplc.com. This series consists of the keynote speakers from the 8th Annual International C. diff conference and health expo. We hope you will enjoy today's show. And at this time, I'd like to introduce a fellow C. diff survivor, Dale Skelly. Good morning, everyone. I would like to start off by thanking Nancy and the C. diff Foundation for allowing me this honor to share my story. I first learned about C. diff when my grandmother acquired the infection in October 2005 when I was 29 years old. My grandmother had been in the hospital for emphysema and once released began feeling sick. She went to her doctors and a multitude of tests were ran. She was diagnosed with C. diff. My mother took it upon herself to care for her, not knowing much about the infection, but wanting to be there for her mother and do what she could. My grandmother was living at home and had one bathroom that my mother had shared, again, not knowing much about the infection. This was at the beginning of that month. By the end of that month, we lost my grandmother due to several health issues, including C. diff. She was 82 years old. About a week before my grandmother passed, my mother started not to feel well. She thought she had the flu. My sister and I came for a visit to find that she couldn't get out of bed. We took her to the hospital where she tested positive for C. diff and was admitted. At the time, my sister and I were living in Pennsylvania, just outside of Philly, while my parents lived in North Jersey, just outside of New York City. We both planned on staying in New Jersey for the week. We held off having my grandmother's funeral for over a week as we had hoped my mother would be able to attend. Unfortunately, the hospital would not release her and she was not able to attend. At the funeral, I began feeling sick and had to leave early. That night, I was experiencing the same symptoms my mother did and my father took me to the hospital. I tested positive for C. diff and was admitted immediately. I was given my own private room and anyone that walked in had to wear gloves and a gown to help limit the spread of the infection. At the same time, my mother's health was declining and she was placed in ICU. I was administered vancomycin and flagyl intravenously. It took a full week before I felt like myself again. The nurses would take me up to visit my mother But being we both had the infection and she was in ICU, I had to wear a gown and gloves. My father spent countless hours visiting myself and my mother. My sister came up on weekends, but unfortunately, friends and family members were discouraged from visiting as this infection is very contagious. After a week in the hospital, I was released but had to continue taking vancomycin and flagyl in pill form. I had lost between 15 and 20 pounds and was ready to go home and get back to my normal routine. Unfortunately, that wouldn't happen as quickly as I thought. When I got home, I took my first dose of pills. Within 10 minutes, I couldn't breathe or swallow. I was rushed back to the hospital where I was placed on an IV and administered steroids and a nebulizer. It seemed that I was having a negative reaction to the pill form of those drugs. I was in the hospital for a couple of hours, 
stabilized and sent home. This time, I was giving Zyfaxan to assist with the symptoms of C. diff. During the next week, I rested and slowly returned to my normal activities. While all of this was happening, my mother's health continued to decline even more. My sister and I made multiple trips up to see our mother, oftentimes missing work or leaving early in order to see her before visiting hours ended. She was placed on a ventilator, and the doctors didn't think she would ever come off of it. They were right. We lost my mother on December 23, 2005, less than eight weeks after she was originally diagnosed. She was only 55 years old. It was an extremely tough time for my family and I. We couldn't believe this was our reality. My sister was getting married in May. We had postponed her bridal shower several times in the hopes that my mother would be able to attend. She had also played such an integral part in planning the wedding. Unfortunately, she was never able to make it. In January 2006, I tested positive for C. diff again. My doctors were afraid to put me back on vancomycin and flagell, so I started taking Zyfaxin again to treat the symptoms. I was advised if I was to go back on flagell or vancomycin, I would need to be admitted to the hospital and hooked up to heart monitors as they were unsure which one I had the reaction to. Luckily, this time around, they caught it early and I was able to continue my treatment at home. It took about two weeks until I physically felt like myself again. Anytime I went out and had to use a public restroom, I was nervous. I felt like I never wanted to leave my house for the fear of contracting the infection again. And knowing if I went back on Zyfaxan and it didn't work, I would have to be admitted to the hospital. As months passed, my fear subsided. Not to say my vigilance and caution were less, but the overall fear I felt when using a public restroom slowly faded. Was I eating right, cleaning the house properly, and avoiding people in places that may cause me to relapse? Even to this day, I am cautious about taking too many antibiotics for the fear I may kill off the good bacteria. I take probiotics daily to help ensure I have plenty of those good bacteria. My family and I are coming up on 15 years that this infection has affected our lives. For years, I would look to see if there were any organizations specializing in this infection or find a way I can be involved. Four years ago, while Googling the infection, I found the C. diff foundation. Without hesitation, I reached out, briefly telling my story and heard back right away. I knew this was something I had to be a part of for myself, my mother, my family. I have told my story to friends, co-workers, acquaintances, and basically anyone that would listen. Spreading the word about such a horrid infection would only benefit others. Over the years, friends have come to me knowing someone that has had the infection as a resource for information, asking about what they should and shouldn't do. I'm happy to help and share my knowledge and refer them to the C. diff organization's website for further guidance. I am so thankful this foundation has been formed. I feel being a part of this, I am making a difference in so many people's lives. I appreciate everything that all of you are doing to help end this disease and prevent anyone else from having to go through the pain and anguish that I have. Thank you all for all you do, and thank you for allowing me to be a part of this and share my story. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, uh, Alba and Dale, uh, for sharing these uh, personal experiences with us. 
Um, it really, again, as I said before, it grounds us and reminds us uh, why we, we work so hard to, uh, to treat this disease most efficiently, minimize the spread of this infection, and, and improve outcomes. And, and we have a long way to go, but we have made a lot of progress. But I think the CETA Foundation has, has really kind of created a, a group that, that advocates for, for patients and practitioners and everyone of the like to improve outcomes here. So it's greatly appreciated that you shared those personal experiences. Um, now we're going to shift gears, and we're going to hear from uh, a representative from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, somebody who we, we hear from each year, and we're so happy that, that Cliff decided that he'd be able to come back, um, Dr. Clifford McDonald. He's a senior advisor for science and integrity at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, he has wonderful insight into this infection from the CDC's perspective, and his presentation is entitled Update from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Cliff, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Um, yes, yeah, so I want to give an update since last November uh, what um, CDC has been doing in regard to uh, C. difficile, and then I'll give an update about um, what we might or might not know right now has been happening since uh, the pandemic began. So one of the big notables, of course, was the publication in November. I think it was after our last annual meeting, uh, the publication of the uh, Antibiotic Resistance Threats Report. You know about this from back in 2013. Um, Paul, you, you talked about this um, from back then, or I think referred to it at least. The uh, AR Threats Report really is a communication um, platform uh, that has really been able to, we think, uh, put a spotlight uh, on the entire problem of antibiotic resistance. And, and of course, we talk about Clostridioides difficile in the context of antibiotic resistance um, because it's a close association with antibiotic use. And of course, uh, in this recent threats report, update 2019 from 2013, the previous, uh, we reported 223,900 uh, estimated cases of hospitalized, of C. difficile in hospitalized patients. This is both people who have it develop and get admitted and then also have the onset in the hospital. And we uh, derived this estimate from our emerging infections program, and I'll say more about that. And we estimated the number of deaths here at 12,800 annually in 2017. This was based upon um, an attributable death uh, fraction uh, applied to the hospitalized case uh, estimate. And this just says more about, um, this is in the threats report in the, in the back matter, you can find it, that we explain how this estimate was made, again, using the Emerging Infections Program data. There's 10 sites that Paul mentioned across the United States, a sentinel surveillance system, um, and how that is similar and different from the 2013 estimate. And uh, Paul, you already mentioned uh, this paper published then in, in uh, I think, March, or maybe it was early April uh, of 2020. Uh, just as COVID was taking off, <clears throat> this um, is an updated estimate from 2011 using the Emerging Infections Program, those 10 Sentinel sites. And I think you already highlighted how uh, in this report we adjusted the observed number of cases uh, or the actual burden listed here. You can see each year total in the um, um, black line um, uh, and, and then also in the, in the dark bars, uh, the actual burden estimate number of cases on the left and um, the incidence on the right axes. Um, and when we, and, and how they're, they're different if they're um, adjusted for the test use. And then this is broken out also in the paper, whether community on, um, associated uh, or uh, healthcare associated. And community associated means something different from community onsite. I'll use both of these terms. Um, uh, likewise, healthcare associated means something different from uh, hospital onset. Um, the community onset, hospital onset are just what, what those terms say, just where people first have their symptoms. Um, associated means that uh, you have 
uh, been in a, if it's healthcare associated, you've been in a healthcare facility in the recent past, in 12 weeks. Um, community associated means that you have not been in a healthcare facility. And, and Paul, you also alluded to this, how um, these uh, pie charts are changing. Um, highlighted here are the um, orange community associated cases uh, um, in both pies from 2011 and 2017, and how community associated now is becoming a bigger uh, part of the overall pie as we are seemingly addressing uh, healthcare associated C. difficile, um, but not uh, appreciably addressing, uh, successfully at least, community associated C. difficile. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit so that you understand um, some different perspectives because I've been talking about the Emerging Infections Program data and its update. Uh, and there, it's the emerging, emerging Infections Program is a population-based sentinel surveillance system over those 10 sites where you can actually track down each case and find out um, where people have been recently and all other things. The National Healthcare Safety Network, NHSN, uh, is another system, of course, where we get uh, annual data from all acute care hospitals, approximately three to 4,000 acute care hospitals across the United States are mandated to report their uh, hospitalized cases of C. difficile, uh, mandated from CMS rules, uh, and they report into the National Healthcare Safety Network. And you can see on the left uh, all the different uh, sources of these cases that uh, get hospitalized. And uh, in the dark blue, you can see hospital onset or HO, uh, and then you see these other groups. Um, the people who get admitted uh, and then develop C. difficile, but they might actually be community-associated cases uh, or uh, community onset with recent inpatient exposures or nursing home onset cases. And you can see how those relate uh, from the perspective of a hospital reporting to National Healthcare Safety Network versus the um, um, proportions uh, that we just saw in previous pie charts, but shown here how some of them get admitted to hospitals on the right, the EIP perspective, the population perspective. So what I, the reason I wanted to show that, and that's worth studying and thinking about further and getting your mind wrapped around, it takes some time to do. I realize that uh, this is what I do every day. Um, but um, we do have now um, additional data uh, published on our antibiotic resistance and patient safety portal, and um, that's what I want to turn your attention to now. And we have the C. difficile infection data that includes counts um, of um, all hospitalized cases, with both community onset and the hospital onset, in addition to the standardized infection ratio, which is a measure of hospital performance preventing uh, hospital onset cases. Uh, so all hospitalized infections equal those that are hospital onset, which what the SIR has been a standardized uh, measurement of for years now, and then also the community onset uh, cases that get um, hospitalized that I showed you in the previous chart. So now we have this as what we call one of our hero stats. So if you go to the ARPSP uh, at cdc.gov, um, and then you navigate to the HAI, so the hospital-associated infections, and you go down to the C. difficile profile, you'll see this uh, these hero stats show up, and you'll see in the far left the hospitals that are reporting. You can see 3,600 in 2018 and then 3,700 in 2019. Uh, so I'm showing you some 2019 data in the bottom hero stats here. And you can see in 2018, the, uh, the data from 2018, which we first started uh, posting just uh, this past winter, I think, um, you can see there the 196,980 uh, or 69 hospitalized cases in 2018 uh, that were um, uh, reported by NHSN hospitals um, in 2018. And you can see that that went down to, in 2019 to 159,463. Um, and then you see on the far right uh, the changes over time. Those are the percent reductions in that standardized infection ratio. Then that's a hospital performance measure. You can see the nation keeps improving in that. We're now 42% down from the 2015 baseline in national um, standardized infection ratio. But going back to this new data 
Uh, you can then scroll down in the CDIF profile on the ARPSP, and you can highlight a state, and you can find your state's total hospitalized cases of C. difficile. Now, this is not the total number of C. difficile cases, because remember, there's also community-associated and other healthcare-associated cases that never get admitted to a hospital. But these are all that find their way into the hospital. So it's a bigger part of, if you want to think of the overall um, pie, uh, or I call it the enchilada. <laughs> so the total enchilada of all C. different infections that the EIP tries to project, and, and those were those numbers I showed earlier, uh, but we do see part of that <laughs> through the hospital's perspective, and we're trying to visualize more of that. So you have now, for your state, the standardized infection ratio for the hospital performance. You also see the total number of hospitalized cases, and you can scroll around and look at that and print some of that data out. And from that site also, here's the progress we're seeing in that standardized infection ratio. Sorry that the Y access is so much bigger than it needs to be. We need to work on that. But you can see that it's come down from a centerized ratio of 1.0 in 2015 now to that 42% reduction uh, down, uh, I guess that would be, um, what would that be? That's 0 0.6 to 8 uh, SIR in 2019. Um, so um, let me quickly now just say a few words about uh, what's happening since uh, the COVID pandemic. And this is uh, from a presentation that uh, Dr. Arjun Srinivasan uh, gave at the Presidential Advisory Council on Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria, PACAR. Uh, this was on September 9th. And I will, after I'm done, uh, place in the chat for everyone to see the link where you can go and download the PDF of his entire presentation. And I've just included a few slides here so you can get a little sense of what may be happening. And it's going to take us a long time to really sort out everything that's been happening, um, but um, just some early glimpse. The key takeaways are that um, uh, you can see here that we are not seeing, uh, we are, although we are seeing sporadic outbreaks of AR infections in COVID units uh, and higher rates uh, of hospital infections, um, but there's no clear evidence that uh, COVID-19 patients are more susceptible to bacterial fungal infections. It looks like they have a similar frequency as patients with influenza-like illness in previous years. Um, but still having these COVID patients in here does uh, create a storm, a perfect storm. Uh, overall, antibiotic use has fluctuated, but it appears stable um, in early 2020. I'll show you that. Uh, stable in, in hospitals after an initial early spike. And in the outpatient setting, we're seeing significant drops, but this probably has to do with a lot of drops in overall outpatient. Uh, access. Um, so um, the data that, that I'm showing you here is from a combination of NHSN and Premier data, and also uh, from nursing homes. There is uh, some data um, from uh, Farm Farmerita uh, from 1900 nursing homes, and the outpatient data reflects the IQVIA data. Uh, so overall, um, yeah, when we compare. Patients from 2019 with influenza-like illness to COVID-19 patients in 2020, uh, you can see that um, we have an increased frequency of isolation of ESDL. Those are extended spectrum beta-lactamase, gram-negative bacteria, enterobacteriaceae that produce ESDL enzymes that are resistant to the cephalosporins. Uh, similar um, uh, rate uh, numbers or rates. Um, uh, these are rates for 10,000 discharges of MRSA, CRE, VRE, um, um, carbapenem-resistant acinobacter baumannii, and carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas originosa, abbreviated there. I'm sorry for those abbreviations without explanations. Uh, in terms of hospital antibiotic use, both from NHSN, we have um, around uh, well, 649 hospitals you can see there, and for Premier, 516 hospitals. It looks through these months that overall antibiotic use is pretty stable. Um, this is overall, um, and um, in nursing homes, um, uh, there has been there was this spike in azithromycin use, um, but then that uh, decreased again, and that's probably because of the reports and the idea that azithromycin could help with COVID, but I think that's pretty well disproven now. Um, 
I want to just say, though, that um, when we turn to outpatient antibiotic use, we have to understand there's been this sort of market um, deformation, that's what I'll call it, in the overall um, healthcare-seeking behavior with tremendous reductions in emergency room visits um, and outpatient visits, largely because of the fear of acquiring COVID in those settings. Um, but along with that, we've seen then from the IQVIA data, these market reductions in outpatient antibiotic prescriptions. Um, and although I'm not showing you this, we have looked at some of the community onset C. difficile infections that get hospitalized in the NHSN data. Remember, I've talked to you about those community onset hospitalized cases, and they have dropped significantly as well. Um, uh, whereas there's been some decline in the inpatient uh, CDI, not as markedly as the outpatient uh, hospitalized, the community onset hospitalized cases. Um, and that that's just uh, verbal. I'm not giving you any numbers on that, but that would seem to correlate with these tremendous reductions in outpatient antibiotic use. Um, there's certainly been other impacts from COVID-19 as well listed here. Um, uh, a lot of um, uh, impact on our diagnostics supply, um, a lot of other public health surveillance is being impacted. Um, but overall, I just want to say that uh, since the pandemic onset, there has been a tremendous deformation in the way um, uh, healthcare delivery is occurring in the country. Um, it is... Um, and, and probably to a lot of detriment to a lot of patients as well as we've seen uh, some patients presenting late with other conditions and whatnot. Um, we could have a fuller discussion of that, but probably time won't allow. Um, so I'll just uh, end with that and happy to entertain questions in the chat or in the Q&A, and uh, um, otherwise I'll stop there. Thank you. Cliff, thank you so much for that uh, really nice overview of the epidemiology of C. difficile infection with the with the highlight of a focus on COVID-19 and its impact on our on our nation in terms of antimicrobial uh, prescriptions and a number of other factors. It's really fascinating. We're living in really a, a very rapidly evolving time um, and uh, appreciate the great insights. We hope you are enjoying listening to the keynote speakers of the 8th Annual International Virtual C. diff Conference and Health Expo, sponsored by Summit Therapeutics. Learn more about how Summit Therapeutics is advancing innovative therapies. Visit the Summit Therapeutics website at summitplc.com. We are now going to shift gears uh, to uh, Dr. Eric DeBerke. Um, Eric is an associated professor, uh, associated professor of medicine at the Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, where he is a member of the Division of Infectious Disease, and he will be focusing on hospital onset infection. Specifically, the title of his talk is Optimizing Prevention of Hospital Onset Postridoitis Difficile Infection. Eric, thank you so much for participating again this year in our conference. Oh, well, thank you again so much for inviting me to speak here today. Uh, here are my disclosures. So as Clifton mentioned, um, through the emerging uh, infection program, CDF surveillance, as well as NHSN, we have been seeing uh, declines in the CDF infection incidence, hospital onset, um, healthcare-associated onset, uh, CDF infections uh, since 2011, uh, through 2015 and up until today. Uh, interestingly enough, um, there have been several publications in the last couple of years in which people do interventions to further reduce hospital onset C. diff infection cases, uh, but they apparently did not have any impact. And, and I was involved in one of these studies, and you could see uh, from this figure here, um, so this was a very large study with over 300 hospitals at any one uh, time point. And uh, we did an intervention at these hospitals uh, to encourage 
uh, incorporation of recommended C. diff infection practices. And you can see there's essentially no impact on the trend line of the C. difficile infection incidence, although the decline over time was statistically significant. It's just that the intervention had no impact. And I think there's several reasons for this, and, and I think probably the most important of which is that, as I mentioned, this intervention took place in 2015. And so the, the Shea Compendium uh, was first published in 2008, and, and the recommendation Recommendations uh, for these interventions are essentially based on the Shea Compendium, and there was an update in 2014 as well. Uh, there were really not any major uh, updates in recommended prevention practices from the 2008 to the 2014 version for C. diff. And then also in 2011, hospitals had to start reporting C. diff uh, incidents through uh, NHSN, and then soon thereafter, C. diff became a, uh, a value-based purchasing um, uh, condition, so potentially impacting hospital reimbursement. So I think, you know, one reason why the current interventions are not showing much of an impact is that the current interventions are based on recommendations, which hospitals probably have already been doing um, because of all these issues going on and, and CDF um, becoming a focus for prevention. Of note, I think it is important to note that um, um, even at the end of these interventions, I, I think there's still opportunities for the focus of these interventions to be optimized. So although 88% at the end of the intervention reported having uh, training for contact precautions, only 37% of these hospitals actually assessed uh, down glove and gown, uh, downing and doffing competency. And although 75% of hospitals reported an antimicrobial stewardship program, only a quarter of these hospitals provided uh, feedback uh, uh, directly to the prescriber. So although we're seeing these declines, um, I think the good news here is that there's actually still room for improvement. Uh, we could, there's still opportunities to optimize seat of prevention within the hospital setting. So there's two main approaches we use to prevent C. diff infection in the hospital. Uh, one is to decrease transmission of C. difficile within the hospital, and we do this through contact precautions and cleaning the environment. And then the other main approach is to decrease the risk of C. diff infection developing in the first place, and this is through antimicrobial stewardship. Um, I'm not going to focus on that so much today because as that's kind of a, a whole other uh, discussion. I'll be focusing more on how to optimize preventing transmission within the healthcare setting. So I think there's two areas when it comes to decreasing transmission that probably get too much focus, and these are environmental decontamination and method of hand hygiene with the controversy being should a healthcare worker use soap and water um, versus an alcohol-based hand rub after seeing a patient with C. diff infection, and that's because the alcohol does not kill the C. diff spores, but the soap and water will wash it down the drain. Um, rather than focusing on these two areas, I, I think that the focus actually should be on contact precautions, and I'll go over why that is. So when it comes to decontaminating the environment to prevent C. diff infection, almost all reports of success have occurred in, high, in outbreak or high incident settings. And in these settings, there's typically multiple concurrent interventions happening, uh, so it's not entirely clear which intervention had the greatest impact uh, on the C. diff uh, uh, reductions in C. diff infection incidents, whether it was the environmental decontamination or any of the other interventions that were occurring. And there's also another issue with these in that you need to be careful with your statistical methods uh, because you can have something called a regression to the mean. In general, when you start with the, with the incidence of a condition being high, no matter what you do, just from a statistical probability standpoint, there's a good chance that rate will be lower in the in a future time point. It's also important to note that there's almost no reports of success of environmental decontamination interventions in endemic settings. And this is probably because most studies demonstrate that fewer than 10% of new cases of C. diff infection or new acquisitions of C. difficile in the hospital are a result from persistent environmental contamination. So even if you were able to effectively 100% decontaminate your environment uh, from C. difficile and, and completely eliminate um, um, that source of transmission, there's a good chance you're not going to demonstrate a statistically significant decrease in your C. diff infection incidence. 
And, and this is why enhanced cleaning uh, in some more recent very large multi-center studies have not demonstrated reductions of C. diff infection in endemic settings. So in this study, I'm going to uh, discuss by Ray et al., uh, published in 2017, was a cluster randomized trial. So hospitals were randomized to do their environmental decontamination as they had been doing, and the intervention hospitals, hospitals randomized to the intervention, used a fluorescent marker and provided feedback to housekeeping. And with this intervention, they did find significant improvements in cleaning as well as reductions in C. difficile infection contamination in the intervention hospitals, but they did not see these in the control hospitals. However, this had absolutely no impact in C. diff infection incidence. You can see here, focus on the black line is the pooled incidence for the control hospitals, and the black dashed line is the pool incidence on the intervention hospitals. And you can see there is no impact of this intervention on C. diff infection incidence. There's a similar study done in Australia. And again, they had the same thing, so they found significant improvement in environmental cleaning, uh, but they found no impact on C. difficile infection incidence. So, so the red line here uh, is the actual incidence of C. diff infection uh, across these hospitals. So you can see over time, as we have seen in the, in, in the U.S., the incidence had been declining. Um, interestingly enough, they predict that the incidence would have been lower had they done nothing, uh, which is the, this is the predicted trend line, the dash black line, uh, if they had done nothing. You could see there was a slight jump in the C. diff infection incidence, uh, but this was not statistically significant. So again, this intervention, which focused on enhanced environmental cleaning uh, at multiple hospitals, did not appear to have an impact on C. diff infection incidence. I jumped ahead. And also, you know, the, the, those two studies focused on people cleaning the environment and trying to improve how well they're cleaning, uh, the efficacy of their cleaning. Um, so there's the question as to whether or not you need to use an automated uh, disinfection system with the ones being available being UV uh, and hydrogen peroxide vapor type systems. Uh, so in this study done by uh, Deverick Anderson, uh, at Duke and the Duke Infection Control Outreach Network called the Better Study. They actually randomized hospitals to use uh, either bleach for cleaning the room of a patient that had C. diff or using bleach and then the addition of a UV device afterwards. And you could see here there's absolutely no difference in the incidence of C. diff infection amongst the patients subsequently admitted to these rooms after a person with C. diff uh, was discharged from that room and no difference in the C. diff infection incidence. Um, whether or not UV was used. But one thing I really want to stress here is I'm not saying that we can ignore cleaning the environment. I think a good environmental cleaning is essential to good um, for healthcare uh, infection prevention. Uh, but really what I'm saying here, as long as rooms are getting adequately cleaned, doing more intensive cleaning does not appear to provide much additional benefit for prevention of C. diff infection. And I have my asterisks here of all epi is local. So clearly, if, you're, if, if a hospital is seeing uh, cases of C. diff infection pop up again and again and again in the same, in, in the same rooms, um, that suggests those rooms do need a more thorough cleaning uh, and likely are contributing to C. diff infection cases. So the other area where I think people focus on a little too much is whether or not soap and water should be used versus alcohol-based hand rubs. Um, after caring for a patient with C. diff infection. And again, the alcohol does not kill the C. difficile spores, uh, and, but, but soap and water is able to wash them down the drain. But I think part of the problem here is that compliance with so soap and water is so poor that it is essentially like doing nothing. And, um, and there's over four decades of data demonstrating this. So, so after interventions to try to improve hand washing compliance, actual adherence um, to soap and water, doing the full uh, CDC recommended 15 second uh, hand wash is only about 40%. So that's really not high enough to adequately prevent transmission of organisms from patient to patient within the healthcare setting. And it's also important to note that with, with soap and water, with the, the CDC recommended 15 second hand wash, you get a one log reduction. With the WHO recommended 30 second hand wash, you get a two log reduction, but for Vegetative cells, you know, so MRSA, uh, E. coli, things such as that, with alcohol-based hand rubs, you actually get a four-log reduction. So, 
So um, uh, much more effective than soap and water. And I apologize on this slide. Uh, I have a typo in my title here. So what studies have failed to demonstrate is that C. diff infection uh, incidence does not appear to increase with alcohol-based hand rubs. But actually what this should say is, but, but other healthcare-associated infections actually go down with alcohol-based hand rubs. Sorry for that uh, typo there. Uh, and again, so eight of nine studies uh, that have looked at this have not found no correlation between method of hand hygiene and C. diff infection incidence. But six of the seven hospitals that looked at other uh, resistant organisms or healthcare-associated infections actually found reductions with alcohol-based hand rubs. So you're not gaining much with soap and water for C. diff, but then you're losing something when it comes to all the other healthcare-associated infections. So like I mentioned earlier, I think we really need to focus on contact precautions. So in the McFarland study, which was one of the seminal papers demonstrating that most cases of hospital onset C. diff infection are a result of a new acquisition of C. diff within the hospital, found um, uh, no difference in C. difficile contamination. Uh, whether or not hands were washed if gloves were not worn, but they found no contamination if gloves were worn. So, so again, I see this as the gloves are primary prevention. Preventing the contamination of the hands in the first place is much more effective than trying to do secondary prevention and wash them away uh, if the hands become contaminated. In a more recent study done in France, they actually had a concerning finding that they actually were able to detect C. difficile, recover C. difficile from the hands of 24 percent of healthcare workers after caring for a patient with C. diff infection, but I think it is important to know, note that in about half of these instances, the healthcare worker actually did not wear gloves. So again, they did not use that primary prevention, and although that accounted for half of the instances of contaminated healthcare workers, this represented only 8 percent of contacts observed. So again, gloves have a very important um, role when it comes to preventing healthcare worker hand contamination. And among the other half of these people that actually did wear gloves, uh, most of these instances, they actually did something that would increase their potential that they would come into contact with feces. So, so they would have a high burden of C. diff on the gloves. So possibly they became contaminated, the hands became contaminated with removal of the gloves. So in the, uh, the 2017 C. diff guidelines uh, in the prevention section, the only recommendation for, for preventing C. diff that received a high strength of recommendation is actually to wear gloves when handling stool. And this is a, a, what I consider a seminal paper done by uh, Stu Johnson and Dale Gerding, um, and, and I present this paper very frequently, but, but essentially what they did is they randomized uh, two wards to an intervention, which is to wear education to wear gloves and handling body substances, especially stool, and they made gloves readily available. The control wards were just standard of care. And it is important to note that this was done in the pre-universal precaution days, and it actually was not uncommon for nurses to be specifically taught to not wear gloves when handling stool that they might offend the patient, that they thought their stool was so icky that they had to wear gloves. So, so there, this actually did have a measurable impact on glove use uh, when handling stool. And not too surprisingly, I think, there's a significant reduction of both C. diff infection incidence as well as asymptomatic colonization on the glove wards, but this was not seen on the control wards. So again, we've got uh, high quality evidence demonstrating that gloves are effective at preventing C. diff infection. Also, there are data to demonstrate that we have a long way to go for improving compliance with C. diff infection uh, contact pre uh, precautions. And so in this study, they looked at um, healthcare workers entering and exit rooms of patients with C. diff infection incidents, and they actually found there were fewer people that were fully compliant with contact precautions than were fully non-compliant with contact precautions. So again, we've got uh, some room uh, uh, to, for improvement here when it comes to contact precautions compliance. And in addition, just to wearing the gowns and gloves, it's important that removal technique is appropriate as well. And, and we've done some studies with, with Dr. Jenny Kwan here, um, uh, taking the charge on these studies to help demonstrate this. So in, in our first assessment here, what we did is that we enrolled healthcare workers. Um, we um, asked them to put on gowns and gloves as they typically do when they enter a room of a patient with contact precautions. We actually then blindfolded them 
and sprayed some uh, fluorescent markers uh, on various parts of their body. We also had some dummy sprays as well, so they didn't know which spray was, was the marker versus which spray was the dummy spray. And then we observed them removing their gowns and gloves, and we actually found that 60% um, of the people uh, observed uh, had at least one error in uh, the removal technique, and we actually documented in 28% of these healthcare workers they had contaminated themselves with the fluorescent marker. We did another study here where actually we went to patient rooms, we enrolled the patient, we put these markers at uh, various places throughout the room, and then as well as on the patient. And um, then what we did, we observed uh, healthcare workers going into and out of the rooms, and we followed them down the hall to see what surfaces they touched. And then we, we then consented the healthcare worker, and if they allowed us to, to um, assess them, we then looked for evidence of self-contamination. And we did find evidence of self-contamination, 17% of these healthcare workers, and with 9% of these uh, uh, healthcare workers had contaminated at least one surface outside of the patient room. So again, uh, wearing the gowns and gloves important as well as removing them properly. It's also important to remember that, that um, we pay attention to what equipment is being used in these uh, patient rooms. Uh, it's been well described that there have been C. diff infection outbreaks with the use of electronic thermometers that go from patient to patient. Uh, blood pressure cuffs are actually frequently contaminated as well. So in this study done by Mannion, they found they were able to recover C. diff just as frequently from uh, bedside blood pressure cuffs as they were from commodes. Uh, Walker actually found 33% of blood pressure cuffs to be contaminated, uh, and stethoscopes as well. So if you look at this 14%, it's about as commonly contaminated as a bedside commode. So it's important for, for physicians and nurses when they're examining patients and contact precautions to use the isolation stethoscope, to not use their own stethoscope so that their own stethoscope does not become contaminated and become a vector for C. diff transmission uh, to other patients they subsequently see. And like I mentioned, I'm not going to really talk much about antimicrobial stewardship and how to do it. Um, just because that, that's a whole nother topic, that's a whole nother ball of wax. But antimicrobial stewardship probably is our most effective method for preventing C. diff infection. <clears throat> study after study um, over the decades, regardless of the setting, if it's academic or, or a community, if it's inpatient, outpatient, if it's ICU versus general ward, uh, consistently demonstrates about 25% of people who are on antibiotics actually have no uh, indication for an antibiotic. So if you're able to reduce that, you're going to reduce the, the proportion of people at risk for C. diff infection. Also, it's been demonstrated um, consistently that even if you don't reduce overall antibiotic prescribing, if you shift antibiotic biotic prescribing to lower CDI risk antibiotics, it does have a big impact on C. diff infection incidence. So again, antimicrobial stewardship probably is our most effective method today for preventing C. diff infection in the healthcare setting. And so in conclusion, uh, most hospital onset CDI cases are due to new C. difficile acquisitions. Uh, persistent environmental contamination accounts for only uh, probably or, or consistently has been demonstrated to be less than 10% of new hospital onset CDI cases. Uh, but again, uh, all epidemiology is local. You know, make sure that your healthcare or your, your housekeepers are adequately adequately cleaning the environment. And if you see a hot spot, go ahead and have them intervene and more thoroughly decontaminate that room. Um, also, when it comes to method of hand hygiene, I think, again, we've got decades of experience that it's really difficult for a healthcare, busy healthcare worker to do a full 15 seconds open wash um, uh, hand hygiene. Um, so, so I think maybe we need to maybe rethink it. I think soap and you know method of hand hygiene and the use has really been kind of an all or none phenomenon. They say use soap and water or use alcohol, but I think maybe we should use a more targeted approach. So, if a healthcare worker didn't happen to wear gloves, absolutely they should use soap and water. If that healthcare worker did something where they might have had 
contact with something with a high burden of fecal organisms. So if they're bathing the patient, if they're cleaning a bedpan and whatever, that would be another instance where it would be good to use soap and water. And that's probably true not just for patients with C. diff, uh, but for any patient uh, contact. But after, even if they use soap and water, they probably should go ahead and use that alcohol-based hand rub anyhow just because we know it's so much more effective uh, than soap and water at um, uh, removing vegetative bacteria from the hands of healthcare workers. Also, I think the focus of uh, for preventing transmission should stress compliance with contact precautions, and this is not just with putting on the gowns and gloves, but removing them properly um, to prevent contamination of the healthcare worker during the removal process, and also to make sure to use the isolation stethoscope, uh, which which unfortunately remains um, um, an area that, that continues to use a lot of improvement. And with that, um, I would be happy to answer any questions through the chat, and, and I'll hand the ball back over to uh, Paul. Well, thank you. That was, uh, that was really an insightful talk. Um, it's always refreshing when you hear that your stethoscope is as clean as a commode. Um, <laughs> it's these talks that kind of remind us of the importance of following pro appropriate technique, following a lot of the guidelines that the healthcare systems put in place. They're there for a reason. Um, and even just right at the bottom of your conclusion slides, it's not only to put it on properly, the PPP, but also taking it off properly to, to really minimize the spread of infection. So Eric, thank you again for really a great talk. Um, we are up, uh, starting our break right now. Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take about 20 minutes uh, for people to get up, stretch their legs, use the restroom. I will remind you at this moment um, to try to take a, the, this opportunity also um, to visit the CDF 2020 webpage. Um, there's a lot of information on that webpage. There's posters. Our sponsors also have sections on the webpage with short videos and information. Thank you for joining us today. We wish to acknowledge the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and developing new products to address C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, clinical trials, protecting the gut microbiome, diagnostics, and environmental safety worldwide. To learn more about clinical trials focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff infections, prevention, and treatments, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website, www.cdfoundation.org. Clinical trials in progress. Help them to help you to help others. We send out our well wishes to all patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health continued healing, and a good day. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.